The Guardian. Hello, Media Talk listeners. This is a one-off special download of our new and free Guardian Audio Edition, a selection of The Guardian's best journalism across sport, culture, science and politics. It's read by professional voice artists, even better than me. To subscribe, sign up at iTunes, SoundCloud or Audioboo. And I hope you enjoy the Guardian Audio Edition. This podcast is brought to you by audible.co.uk, the number one destination for great listening, from best-selling books to classics. Welcome to the Guardian Audio Edition, our selection of the week's best longer articles from the newspaper and online. Coming up... Baroness Margaret Thatcher dies aged 87. Martine White is a product of British welfare, not Mick Philpot. Is Germany too powerful for Europe? Where's the real threat here? Kim Jong-un or Trident? Sam Pania, the man who could bring you back from the dead. Film star Eva Mendes. I don't care about looking beautiful. And in this week's audiobook review, we are investigating mysteries for younger listeners with Anthony Horowitz's The Falcon's Malteser and Anne Cassidy's latest, Killing Rachel. Baroness Margaret Thatcher, the UK's first female Prime Minister, changed the way Britons viewed politics and economics. By Michael White. Margaret Thatcher, the most dominant British Prime Minister since Winston Churchill in 1940 and a global champion of the late 20th century free market economic revival, has died. Her spokesman, Lord Bell, said, It is with great sadness that Mark and Carol Thatcher announced that their mother, Baroness Thatcher, died peacefully following a stroke this morning. The first woman elected to lead a major Western state, Lady Thatcher, as she became after the longest premiership since 1827, served 11 unbroken years at number 10. She was only overthrown by an internal Tory party coup in 1990 after her reckless promotion of the poll tax led to rioting in Trafalgar Square. Thatcher, who was 87, had been in declining health for some years, suffering from dementia. The death of Sir Dennis Thatcher, her husband of 50 years and closest confidant, intensified her isolation in what had proved a frustrating retirement, despite energetic worldwide activity in the early years. After a series of mini-strokes in 2002, Thatcher withdrew from public life, no longer able to make the kind of waspish pronouncements that had been her forte in office and beyond. The Iron Lady proved a significant Cold War ally of US President Ronald Reagan in the final showdown with the Soviet Union, which broke up under reformist pressures led by Mikhail Gorbachev, a Kremlin leader with whom Thatcher famously declared she could do business. As a result, Many ordinary voters in ex-Soviet bloc states saw her as a bold champion of their liberty, a view widely shared across the spectrum of mainstream US opinion, though not at home or among key EU partners. Thatcher was an unremarkable mid-ranking conservative politician, known chiefly for being a milk-snatching education secretary under Edward Heath between 1970 and 74 until she unexpectedly overthrew her twice-defeated boss to become party leader in 1975. Within a decade, Thatcher had become known around the world, 
both admired and detested for her pro-market domestic reforms and her implacable attitudes in foreign policy, including her long-running battle with the IRA, which almost managed to murder her when it placed a bomb in the Grand Hotel in Brighton in 1984. At home, the emerging doctrine of Thatcherism meant denationalisation of state-owned industry. The new word, privatisation, came into widespread use in many countries, and defeat of militant trade unionists, notably the National Union of Miners, whose year-long strike in 1984 was bitter and traumatic. Boosted by the newly arrived revenues from Britain's North Sea oil fields, Thatcher had room to manoeuvre and reform the ageing industrial economy in ways denied to post-war predecessors, and she used the opportunity to quell her enemies, including moderate wets in her own party and cabinet. But she also deployed her notorious handbaggings in the European Union to obtain a British rebate, my money as she called it. She was less successful in fending off the centralising ambitions of the Belgian Empire, her description of the European Commission, especially in the years when it was headed by the French socialist Jacques Delors. A further sign of her losing her grip came when Thatcher, long a sympathiser with the apartheid regime in South Africa against the liberation movement, dismissed Nelson Mandela as a terrorist. Her allies in the tabloid press notably Rupert Murdoch's Sun newspaper, egged her on. And as the British economy recovered from the severe recession that her monetarist medicine had inflicted on it, to tame the unions and cure inflation, she briefly seemed invincible. But untrammeled power, the defeat or retirement of allies who had kept her in check, led to mistakes and growing unpopularity. When Sir Geoffrey Howe, nominally her deputy, finally fell out with Thatcher, Chiefly over Europe, his devastating resignation speech triggered Michael Heseltine's leadership challenge. It had been expected since he resigned as Defence Secretary over the Westland helicopter affair in 1986, Thatcher's closest previous brush with political death. Heseltine denied her outright victory in the first round of voting, then confined only to MPs, and she made way for John Major rather than risk losing to him in the second ballot. In retirement, she wrote highly successful memoirs in two volumes and campaigned energetically on behalf of the Thatcher Foundation, which sought to promote her values, free markets and Anglo-Saxon liberties around the world. Speaking engagements made her moderately wealthy and she made her final home in London's Belgravia. George Osborne is fighting back, aware that tax cuts for the rich and benefit cuts for the frail shock even natural conservatives. But this is just the start, by Polly Toynbee. Saturday is windfall day for the 267,000 top taxpayers. As the highest rate falls to 45%, they get an average of £10,000, while the richest 13,000 people will win a £100,000 bonanza. Will they reach for the How to Spend It supplement of the FT, looking for luxury baubles, most may barely notice this little extra. In a speech of spectacular mendacity, even by his own standards, George Osborne told a group of Morrison staff this week that the 50% rate had caused the amount collected to fall by billions of pounds as the wealthy paid less. You might think he'd be ashamed to admit failure to block loopholes or chase avoiders and evaders. If people cheat on benefits, he doesn't relax the rules to make cheating legal. 
While benefit fraud costs less than £1 billion, tax avoiding or evading costs the Treasury at least £70 billion a year, as revealed by The Guardian's Tax Gap series. The rich protest they contribute most in tax. Indeed they do, as wealth and income is sucked upwards. The top 10% own 44% of everything. If they owned and earned everything, they'd contribute 100% of Treasury income and no doubt protest yet louder at the nation of dependents they carry on their backs. Osborne used figures for the first year of the 50% rate, 2010-11, when a year's notice let the rich shift £16 billion into the previous tax year and only pay the old rate. Many did that last year too, delaying income until after Saturday. So instead of raising the expected £3 billion a year, the 50% rate only brought in £1 billion, a negligible dent in Osborne's growing deficit. A 50% rate would raise more if permanent loopholes were closed. But Osborne never wanted the tax to work. As he told Morrison's staff, we cannot have a top rate of tax that discourages people from living here. We are welcoming entrepreneurs and wealth creators and the jobs they bring with them. Does he mean the creative soul at the head of Centrica, whose 6% gas price rise earned him £4 million? Or Rich Ritchie's £18 million for running the disgraced Barclays? Or the Capita chief executive's £8.5 million earned from profits in public sector contracts? Ed Balzer's figures show over 600 bankers are winners in this Bino, 40 due for £100,000 each. The £1 billion given out to the top few on Saturday could instead have prevented the bedroom tax from evicting 660,000 people from secure social homes, supposedly saving £465 million. It could have prevented council tax benefit cuts for the poorest, supposed to save £480 million, though councils expect soaring arrears on rent and council tax. Bailiffs will go in to distrain and evict, but no bailiffs knock for the missing billions tax-planned away at the top. Osborne's jaw-dropping effrontery often leaves opponents winded. How could he claim, nine of ten working households will be better off as a result of the changes we are making? By selectively using only the announcements he made last month, not the cuts coming in now or still to come. Even that is dubious, since the Treasury's own impact on households budget shows only three out of ten are better off, and all three are in the top half, with all in the bottom half being worse off. Take everything together, with VAT rises and benefit cuts, and the Institute for Fiscal Studies says families are £891 worse off this year. Almost everything Osborne does helps the upper, not the lower half. He boasts that his £1 billion spent on raising personal allowances is to help the lowest paid but it doesn't much. The IFS says three-quarters of it goes to those in the top half. So if his audience were ordinary Morrison's floor staff, nothing much is coming their way. If they are parents, they had a cut this week. What a gift the Philpot case has been. A bizarre and monstrous distraction to poison the public debate in the weak benefits are cut while the richest cash in. In a leader, the Times calls for benefits to be paid for only two children per family. Clueless or callous, they think children are what Anne Widdecombe calls benefit meal tickets. 
Roundtree and Child Poverty Action Group show the £9 a day for a child is at least £10 a week too little. Most parents go without some meals to feed their children. Research in Why Money Matters shows that the poorest families are most likely to spend extra money on their children. What would the Times do? Most of the tax credit bill is paid to working parents, including full-timers on the minimum wage, to keep children above the breadline. Would the Times support a living wage, or should those families use food banks? Defenders of Social Security fight back feebly with mere facts. Tell people that most of the poor work. Tell them only 10% of the Department for Work and Pensions bill goes on those out of work. Or tell them the dole in the UK is almost the lowest among the richer EU nations. But if the facts don't fit people's belief, they are soon forgotten. Better to tell true stories about the cuts, like that of Martine White, a thalidomide victim who's blind in one eye, partially deaf, uses a stairlift and a wheelchair and is waiting for spinal surgery. She worked until 2004 when she had a brain tumour removed. But she's losing £110 a week and has been told to attend a work training course. That's no one-off error when official figures show more than 1,700 disabled people died last year within weeks of being found fit for work. The government put up a ferocious fight back this week, rightly sensing that cuts for the frail and party time for the mega-rich risk shocking even natural Conservatives. This is just the start. From now on, there will be hundreds of thousands more Martine White stories, while Philpots are rare. 20 years ago, Germany's economy was stagnating. Today, as the Eurozone crisis deepens, this giant is keeping Europe afloat. But what does it want in return? Stuart Jeffries talks to German sociologist Ulrich Beck, who believes that his country has become a political monster. In his novel Fatherland, Robert Harris envisaged a hellish scenario. Hitler won the Second World War. Decades later, the Greater German Reich extends from the Rhine to the Caspian Sea. The rest of Europe, though notionally consisting of independent states, is really under the Nazi jackboot. Sound familiar? Of course not. That nightmare never came to pass. Happily, Germany does not rule Europe. Or does it? Munich-based sociologist Ulrich Beck argues in his new book that the Eurozone catastrophe has given birth to a political monster, a German Europe. When, on the 1st of July this year, Croatia becomes a member, the European Union will contain 500 million people and be the largest market and trading bloc in the world. The new German power in Europe is not based, as in former times, on force, writes Beck in German Europe, which is a consolation. It has no need of weapons to impose its will on other states, he says. It has no need to invade, and yet is ubiquitous. His homeland's latest Iron Chancellor, Angela Merkel, rules Europe, imposing German values on feebler client nations, bailing out southern Europeans with their oversized public sectors, rampant tax evasion and long lunches. In the countries most harshly affected by the crisis, many people think they are losers because the austerity policy pursued jointly by Berlin and Brussels deprives them of their means of livelihood and also of their human dignity, argues Beck. Other Germans naturally don't see it quite that way. 
The official line from the German embassy in London is that Germany is helping other European economies to become globally competitive and more able to take on emerging markets. Germany was among the first to have started this endeavour and therefore might temporarily be a little ahead of others, says spokesman Norman Walter. Our main political drive over the last few years has been to increase competitiveness in all Eurozone and EU member states. To get a different perspective on German domination of Europe, I consult a stand-up comic, Henning Wein, a German comedian who's tired of being called an oxymoron by Britons and is in the middle of a UK tour. The blurb for his show goes, According to Henning, there's no shortcut to success. Hard work will eventually pay off and there is no shame in paying tax. How this transmutes into comedy is anybody's guess, but it seems to suggest that Wein believes slacker Europe needs a German economics lesson. Well, economically, Germany is mainly dominant because it is the country with most people, says Wein. It also has several things that explain its economic success and from which others can learn. Our system of apprenticeships, our building societies that help entrepreneurs. When David Cameron spoke about strivers and skivers, that reminded me of a Swabian saying, Schaffer, Schaffer, Häusler, Bauer. It means work, work, build your little house. That sort of striving is deep in German identity. The worry is that Germany thinks of itself as a nation of strivers bankrolling a continent of skivers. German money is being thrown away on the bankrupt Greeks, ran a headline in the tabloid Bild, while Focus magazine had a cover image of the Venus de Milo giving the finger to the world. If Ireland and Greece sank into the sea tomorrow, Germany would be quietly relieved, says Simon Winder publishing director at Penguin and author of Germania, a personal history of Germans ancient and modern. Germany today reminds me of the British Empire, burdened with non-lucrative colonies that it has to defend when all it's really bothered about is India. The problem for Germany is that it has no India, just as it were lots of Sierra Leones. The latest euro crisis over Cyprus bears out Beck's analysis. According to Newsnight's Paul Mason, the Germans want to avoid creating a moral hazard, rewarding a country that has sold itself as a rule-free playground for Russians who want to keep their money. For German politicians, and not just those of Merkel's ruling Christian Democratic Union, that irresponsible nonsense can't go on forever. It's time for Cyprus to wake up and smell the austerity. Beck argues that Germany is teaching Cyprus a moral lesson, namely that, as he puts it, Suffering purifies. The road through hell, the road through austerity, leads to the heaven of economic recovery. It's a very German lesson, born of the philosophies of Martin Luther and Max Weber, and based on the Protestant work ethic. That doesn't play too well in Nicosia, hence all those Merkel kaput banners waved by soon-to-be-redundant employees of Cyprus's popular bank. But what are the Germans getting out of teaching allegedly slacker Europeans how to run their economies? For Beck, Germany's European dominance has given the nation a new sense of identity after decades of Nazi guilt and provides liberation from what he calls the never-again syndrome. Never again a holocaust, never again fascism, never again militarism. After the Second World War and the Holocaust, he argues, Germany was in ruins morally and economically. Now, in both senses, it is back. The origins of German economic dominance predate our current crisis. 
More than 20 years ago, Germany made a sacrifice for Europe at Maastricht when it agreed to put the Deutschmark to the sword so that another currency could be born. The tragedy for the Germans is that they viewed the euro as their great healing gift to the rest of Europe, an act of self-denial in which they cashed in their totemic Deutschmark for the continent's greater good, says Winder. Since the fall of Hitler, it has been Germany's self-imposed obligation to help build a Europe where the petty nationalisms that had ruined the continent in two world wars could be definitively overcome. It's all about Vergangenheitsbewältigung, which means, roughly, the struggle to come to terms with the past, and, in particular, a Nazi past. Maybe Britain will sometime undergo its own Vergangenheitsbewältigung for its imperial shame, but that's another story. The Germans no longer wish to be thought of as racists and warmongers, Beck says. They would prefer to become the schoolmasters and moral enlighteners of Europe. Germany's chorus of I want to teach the world to sing doesn't play too well in Tring or Extra Madura, says Winder. But that's the Teutonic song. Two decades ago, Germany, after reunification, was once as Greece is today, with a stagnating economy and five million unemployed. But thanks to neoliberal austerity and taking on the Protestant notion that suffering purifies, the Germans were able to realise a jobs miracle. Now, Beck argues, German reunification is being used as the template for German crisis management in Europe. As head of the continent's strongest economic power, Merkel is in a position to dictate the terms under which struggling Eurozone nations can apply for further credit, eroding the democratic autonomy of the Greek, Italian and Spanish parliaments. Beck calls her Machiavelli, after Machiavelli, to highlight the political nous with which she's run rings around other leaders. He suggests that she is the uncrowned queen of Europe. Queen Machiavelli I of Europe, perhaps, demands that Germany's new colonies save in the interests of stability, a formula based on the good housekeeping practices of a woman who sometimes casts herself as a sensible Swabian housewife. Beck's Chancellor sounds like Margaret Thatcher, who also prudently approached the balancing of government accounts as though they were a household budget. There is one important difference, Beck says. Thatcher was doing to Britain something the British electorate had voted for. What Merkel is doing in Europe has no democratic mandate. Viewed thus, Germans are power-crazed anti-democrats using economic crisis to stage a furtive putsch on the supine continent. Aren't we witnessing a German power grab? Heavens, no. They have no imperial bone left in their body, argues Winder. They are colonists, but incredibly reluctant ones. There is no smoke-filled room filled with sausage-eating Germans who want to dominate Europe. There is no conspiracy. I think that's an incredibly silly point to make, says Vane. German dominance in Europe is not anti-democratic. There are parts of Europe that are economically ahead of other parts. It's just the same in Britain. London is economically ahead of the northeast of England. So should London leave Stirling? That's obviously a silly answer. The same is true in Europe. There are fishing villages in Greece that are going to be economically negligible, while Germany is dominant. Does that mean we should leave the euro? No. A strong Europe needs a strong Germany. There is, though, a paradox in Germany's European domination. It is economically supreme, but culturally negligible. Some of us are enjoying the Wagner bicentenary, but it can hardly be argued that his music indicates the virility of German cultural exports in the new millennium. Nobody is wearing lederhosen in Glasgow or Warsaw. 
Next to nobody is learning German as a foreign language. Your next box set might well be in Danish, but nobody's will be in German. Fatih Aken, Christian Petzold, Hans Christian Schmidt and Ulrich Köhler have one thing in common. Few have heard of these alleged icons of German new wave cinema outside Germany. Yes, the Tate's website did crash briefly when it was announced that tickets were available for the Kraftwerk gig at the Turbine Hall, but that's the exception that proves the rule. They're living on empty, culturally, says Winder. There's no German novel I'm looking forward to and no German film, but it's the same throughout Europe. Europe is culturally null. Britain is the cultural dynamo of Europe by a million miles. Why is Germany failing to export its cultural goods with the success of, say, its car, machine tool or optics industries? There's one simple reason, replies Vane. Bismarck didn't believe in colonies. What Vane means by that is that the 19th century German Chancellor, who presided over a vast and recently unified people, decided not to emulate Britain, Spain and France in their imperial land grabs. As a result, German never became a global language. English became the world's most widely spoken tongue. The English language is dominant because of Hollywood, and that helps British culture, says Vane. In a recent survey by Monocle magazine, Britain was found to be the world's leader in what's called soft power, a country's ability to make friends and influence people not through military might, but through culture, education, language and values. In short, the things that make people lovers rather than fearers, says John Warne, the British Council's Director of Strategy. Germany, by contrast, is feared for its economic dominance. At the same time, it seems culturally insular. What a shame we don't get more German culture here. After all, the British and Germans are, one World Cup and two World Wars notwithstanding, simpatico. Germanophile 19th century historian Thomas Carlyle wrote of Germany speaking the same old Saxon tongue and thinking in the same old Saxon spirit with ourselves, while George Orwell wrote that during the First World War, the English working class were in contact with foreigners to an extent that is rarely possible. The sole result was that they brought back a hatred of all Europeans except the Germans, whose courage they admired. Norman Walter at the German embassy argues that the case for his homeland's cultural nullity is weak. Well, we're not exactly world champions, but we aren't that bad either. Ingeniously, he quotes back at me a string of Guardian arts stories that seem to suggest German culture thrives here. Last year's gig by heavy metal band Rammstein in 2012 sold out within minutes, and Dave Simpson's five-star review described it as the rock show of the year. Judith Mackerel argued that Tanztheater Wuppertal's London retrospective World Cities was revelatory. Similarly, The Economist noted that British enthusiasm for modern German culture is quietly growing, and that a new breed of artists is changing British tastes in German culture. And today there's Kurt Schwitters at Tate Britain, Rosemarie Trocker at the Serpentine Gallery. Nobody even mentions the great German art on show at the Northern Renaissance Exhibition at the Queen's Gallery, but they really should. Yes, but visual art and music are the most readily exportable cultural products. Hardly any German literature makes it into the bestseller lists here. In Germany now, the bestseller lists are dominated by Timur Wermes' novel Er ist wieder da, He's Back which is about Hitler. The Führer awakes in Berlin in the summer of 2011, having fallen asleep in 1945. Hitler becomes a media celebrity before entering politics, where he campaigns against dogmuck and speeding. 
The book has sold more than 400,000 copies in Germany, but is as yet untranslated here. A shame. It's a popular account of German Vergangenheitsbewältigung that deserves to be read in Britain. Maybe more Britons should learn German. And what about German TV? Why, I ask Vane, are there no German TV series filling BBC Four's 9pm Saturday night Eurodrama subtitle-arama slot? He contends that we aren't missing much, apart from a cop show called Derrick, which finished broadcasting 15 years ago. But why is there no German rival to Denmark's The Killing, Sweden's Wallander, Italy's Inspector Montalbano or France's Spiral? In Germany, there's no incentive to sell TV content abroad. The BBC makes a lot of money from selling foreign rights, which explains why so much of its content is shown overseas. In Germany, the contracts aren't like that, and the domestic market is huge, so there's no incentive. What does a German Europe mean for the economically bumbling yet allegedly cultural, dynamic Britain? It is drifting into irrelevance, replies Beck. There is already a two-speed Europe, with a pioneer Europe in the Eurozone that the rest of Europe, especially Britain, doesn't really take part in decisions about. Cameron doesn't realise there's a shifting power base in Europe, but instead focuses on withdrawal from Europe. Folly, he argues. Europe isn't across the channel. For the first time, every European citizen existentially depends on Europe. But that too is a German perspective. Britons have rarely gone for continental things such as existentialism, still less a cosmopolitan transcontinental menage. Unsurprisingly, as a good German committed to the end of petty nationalisms, Beck counsels more powers to the European Union to bring the undemocratic reign of Queen Machiavelli to an end. In the past, budgetary credits were tied to austerity and neoliberal reform. In the future, Beck argues, they should be linked to a readiness to support a new continent-wide social contract set up to defend job security, extend freedom and promote democracy. Good luck with all that, Professor, I say. It may well sound hopelessly utopian and naive, he replies, but why not be utopian and naive? Look at the alternative. Maybe only Germans, thanks to the darkness of their 20th century past, have such sunny hopes for this benighted continent. It's a different kind of German Europe from the one Beck indicts and one that nobody need fear, not one premised on Teutonic austerity, but filled with a European idealism you get hardly anywhere else on this cynical continent, least of all in Britain. What we should fear is not the North Korean's bellicosity, but how it's being used to subvert domestic politics in the West. By Simon Jenkins. The enemy is coming. Declare war, dive for cobra, hide the silver... Lock up your daughters. A grateful nation cheers on its leader and saviour, Kim Jong-kam, as he races north to prepare his war machines for battle. The running dogs of terrorism should quake in their boots. The politics of fatuous fright know no bounds. This week, the calmest response to the ludicrous rhetoric of North Korea's Kim Jong-un appears to have come from those most concerned, the people of South Korea. They ignored it. They have heard it before. Should their megalomaniac neighbour ever mean what he says, they could see him off in 24 hours. They even let him sink the occasional ship or shell a village to keep his people happy. 
So what was the British Prime Minister doing today in boosting the nuclear threat from North Korea as evolving so fast as to prove Britain needs a nuclear deterrent more than ever? Is that really the quality of the defence intelligence being fed to him? The answer for David Cameron is the same as for Kim Jong-un, that mighty dictator, domestic politics. Cameron is trying to justify capitulating to the Navy lobby when he came into power, giving them new aircraft carriers and nuclear submarines, weapons that serve no purpose but to keep him at some macho top table. He seized on the latest bombast from North Korea to declare that uncertainty and risk had increased as a result of the unpredictable and aggressive North Korea. So we had to blow £20 billion on renewing Trident and its submarines. None of this makes sense. If such deterrence had any part to play in modern war, the Falklands would not have been invaded, Saddam Hussein would have surrendered, and the Taliban would be cowering in their tents. Nuclear weapons were indeed a bargaining counter in the 20th century's wars of empires, which is why unilateral nuclear disarmament at the height of the Cold War was, in my view, a risk not worth taking. We seem unable to break out of that mindset. The vested interests are too strong. This applies even when the price is to leave a British army ill-equipped for the wars it is actually told to fight. For a quarter of a century now, British submarines with armed nuclear missiles have been wandering the North Atlantic, fulfilling no strategic purpose. They are an extravagance sustained only because potent industrial and military lobbies have cowardly politicians by the vitals, helped by the right-wing press. Policy on Trident is like drugs policy, rooted in unreason and taboo and fertilised by fear. What is most frightening about the West's response to Kim Jong-un is the scale of the exaggeration. Cameron awards him the global reach of a superpower. We might almost ask which side is now impoverishing its people to pay for glamour defences, which is concocting blood-curling scenarios to justify them, and which conjures up enemies to keep its people in thrall to its defence and security chiefs and their demands. Is it only North Korea that feels it must periodically flex its muscles and peddle a ridiculous view of the balance of world power? North Korea constitutes no conceivable threat to the British state or to the US and its allies. Even in some nightmare scenario, such a threat is beyond feasible deterrence by a submarine in the North Atlantic. Every reference to North Korea, including from Cameron in the Daily Telegraph today, relies on a crazy sequential causality. That regime is said to have unveiled a missile which it claims can reach the whole of the United States. This, in turn, would affect the whole of Europe, including the UK. The Americans are quite able to deal with that, as with any attempt to invade South Korea, Japan or US Pacific bases. As for Iran, Pakistan or India, or any other proto-nuclear state, what role might a UK deterrent play in curbing their domestic ambitions or border disputes? Perhaps some madcap leader of such a state might have a Dr Strangelove moment and loose off a missile in the general direction of the West. Such an incident is unlikely to be susceptible to deterrence any more than were General Galtieri or Saddam Hussein, while the sending of a missile, certainly an act of war, does not constitute war as such. 
All it can do is explode and make a terrible mess. Nuclear missiles cannot occupy territory, conquer people or bring about the downfall of a government, let alone of Western civilization. They are symbolic weapons of little military purpose, which is why no one has used one, even tactically, since 1945. But they have been invaluable to those eager for a new arms race, in which the war on terror has replaced the real wars of old. What is increasingly terrifying about this new war is the readiness of otherwise sensible and robust people, mostly Americans and Britons, to allow themselves to be terrified. The horror of a bomb is to those in its vicinity. Terrorism relies on the multiplier effect of publicising it and of a possible next one. But it also relies on the way special interests, including governments, exploit the politics of fear, undermining their budgets and distorting their politics in doing so. This, not the bomb or the missile, is the danger. Hence Cameron's visit yesterday to Fastlane. The lunacies of a Korean dictator halfway round the world is music to the ears of defence lobbyists, arms manufacturers, security consultants, generals and admirals. It should rescue a few billion pounds from the cuts. All cry with one voice, The Koreans are coming! Spend! 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 And the politicians capitulate. Cameron and the coalition, Ed Miliband and Labour, the Treasury, the press. Kim Jong-un has them on the run. He must be laughing. In the Cold War film, The Mouse That Roared, a bankrupt Ruritanian statelet declares war on America, on the grounds that Washington is always generous to those it defeats. Something goes wrong, and America, under a security clampdown at the time, actually loses. The statelet occupies Manhattan and seizes the doomsday Q-bomb, holding America to ransom and thus securing world disarmament. It then discovers that the Q-bomb does not work, but, for the sake of peace on Earth, it keeps quiet about it. America admits defeat. I wonder what films Kim Jong-un has been watching lately. British doctor Sam Parnia specialises in resurrection and insists outdated resuscitation techniques are squandering lives that could be saved. By Tim Adams. Sam Parnia, MD, has a highly sought-after medical speciality, resurrection. His patients can be dead for several hours before they are restored to their former selves with decades of life ahead of them. Parnia is head of intensive care at the Stony Brook University Hospital in New York. If you'd had a cardiac arrest at Parnia's hospital last year and undergone resuscitation, you would have had a 33% chance of being brought back from death. In an average American hospital, that figure would have fallen to 16%. And, though the data is patchy, roughly the same or less if your heart were to have stopped beating in a British hospital. By a conservative extrapolation, Parnia believes the relatively cheap and straightforward methods he uses to restore vital processes could save up to 40,000 American lives a year and maybe 10,000 British ones. Not surprisingly, Parnia, who was trained in the UK and moved to the US in 2005, is frustrated that the medical establishment seems slow and reluctant to listen to these figures. He has written a book in the hope of spreading the word. The Lazarus effect is nothing short of an attempt to recast our understanding of death, based on Parnia's intimate knowledge of the newly porous nature of the previously undiscovered country from which no traveller returns. 
His work in resuscitation has led him logically to wider questions of what constitutes being and not being. In particular, he asks what exactly happens if you are lying dead before resuscitation to your individual self and all its attendant character and memories, your soul, as he is not shy to call it, before it is eventually restored to you a few hours later. When I meet Pania, he's not long off the plane from New York after a night flight with his wife and baby daughter, and the particular revival he's craving is the miracle of strong coffee. He is both forthright and softly spoken, full of careful zeal for his findings. As I sit across the table from him, he can make even the most extraordinary claims seem calmly rational. It is my belief, he says, that anyone who dies of a cause that is reversible should not really die any more. That is, every heart attack victim should no longer die. I have to be careful when I state that because people will say, my husband has died recently and you were saying that need not have happened. But the fact is, heart attacks themselves are quite easily managed. If you can manage the process of death properly, then you go in, take out the clot, put a stent in. The heart will function in most cases. And the same with infections, pneumonia or whatever. People who don't respond to antibiotics in time, we could keep them there for a while longer, after they had died, until they did respond. Pania's belief is backed up by his experience at the margin of life and death in intensive care units for the past two decades. He did his training at Guy's and St Thomas's in London, and particularly in the past five years or so, when most of the advances in resuscitation have occurred. Those advances, most notably the drastic cooling of the corpse to slow neuronal deterioration and the monitoring and maintenance of oxygen levels to the brain, have not yet become accepted possibilities in the medical profession. Pania is on a mission to change that. The one thing that is certain about all of our lives, he says, is that we will all eventually experience a cardiac arrest. All our hearts will stop beating. What happens in the minutes and hours after that will potentially be the most significant moments of our biography. At present, the likelihood is, however, that in those crucial moments we will find ourselves in the medical environment of the 1960s or 1970s. The kind of CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, that we're familiar with from medical dramas, the frenzied pumping of the chest, remains rooted, Pania claims, in its serendipitous discovery in 1960. It remains a haphazard kind of procedure, often performed more in hope than anticipation. Partly this is a question of personnel. Pania is quietly maddened by the worldwide hospital habit in the event of death to send the most junior of doctors along to have a go at CPR. It is as if hospital staff have given up before they've started. Most doctors will do CPR for 20 minutes and then stop, he says. The decision to stop is completely arbitrary, but it is based on an instinct that after that time brain damage is very likely and you don't want to bring people back into a persistent vegetative state. But if you understand all the things that are going on in the brain in those minutes, as we now can, then you can minimise that possibility. There are numerous studies that show that if you implement all the various resuscitation steps together, you not only get a doubling of your survival rates, but the people who come back are not brain damaged. In Pania's ideal world, the way that people are resuscitated would first take in the knowledge that machines are much better at CPR than doctors. After that, he suggests, the next step is to understand that you need to elevate the level of care. The first thing is to cool down the body to best preserve the brain cells, which are by then in the process of apoptosis or suicide. At the same time, it is necessary to keep up the level of oxygen in the blood. In Japan, this is already standard practice in emergency rooms. Using a technique called an ECMO, 
The blood of the deceased is siphoned out of the body, put through a membrane oxygenator and pumped round again. This buys the time needed to fix the underlying problem that caused the person to die in the first place. If the level of oxygen to the brain falls below 45% of normal, the heart will not restart, Pania's research shows. Anything above that, and there is a good chance. Potentially, by this means, dead time can be extended to hours, and there are still positive outcomes. The longest I know of is a Japanese girl I mention in the book, Pania says. She had been dead for more than three hours, and she was resuscitated for six hours. Afterwards, she returned to life perfectly fine and has, I've been told, recently had a baby. It was a truncated version of this process at the London Chest Hospital that allowed the Bolton footballer Fabrice Muamba to be restored to life after he collapsed on the pitch at White Hart Lane last year. Pania watched the events unfold on TV and subsequently kept on reading that Muamba had been, for up to an hour, dead, but always in quotation marks. He laughs. Journalists have invented a new term, clinically dead. I don't know what the term means, but the fact is Muamba was dead. And it was not by a miracle he was brought back to life, it was by science. One of the stranger things you realise in reading Pania's book is the idea that we might be enthralled to historical perceptions of life and death and that these ultimate constants have lately become vaguer than most of us would allow. The other strand of Pania's research, in which he leads a team at Southampton University, is into what most people tend to call near-death experiences and what he calls actual death experiences. Pania has talked to many people about what they recall experiencing while they were dead in his intensive care unit. About half claim to have clear recollections, many of which involve looking down on the surgical team at work on their body, or the familiar image of a bright threshold or tunnel of light into which they were being drawn. Pania has been collecting detailed accounts of these experiences for four years. I ask what conclusions he has drawn. He suggests he is agnostic about the source of these subjective memories, as he is about questions of mind and matter. When I first got interested in these mind-body questions, I was astonished to find that no one had even begun to put forward a theory about exactly how neurons in the brain can generate thoughts, he says. We always assume that all scientists believe the brain produces the mind, but in fact there are plenty who are not certain of that. Even prominent neuroscientists such as Sir John Eccles, a Nobel Prize winner, believe that we are never going to understand mind through neuronal activity. All I can say is what I have observed from my work. It seems that when consciousness shuts down in death, psyche or soul, by which I don't mean ghosts, I mean your individual self, persists for at least those hours before you are resuscitated from which we might justifiably begin to conclude that the brain is acting as an intermediary to manifest your idea of soul or self, but it may not be the source or originator of it. I think that the evidence is beginning to suggest that we should keep open our minds to the possibility that memory, while obviously a scientific entity of some kind, I'm not saying it's magic or anything like that, is not neuronal. Does he have a religious faith? No, he says, and I don't have any religious way into this. But what I do know is that every area of inquiry that used to be tackled by religion or philosophy is now tackled and explained by science. One of the last things to be looked at in this way is the question of what happens when we die. This science of resuscitation allows us to look at that for the first time. While those more esoteric studies go on, Pania wants to ensure that more and more people are successfully returned from death to tell whatever tales they can. I still have colleagues in ICU who say... I don't know why we are doing all this stuff, he says. 
Not long ago, I went for a job interview in New York at a teaching hospital, and I was told if a patient comes in and has a cardiac arrest and they end up in the cardiac care unit, they will be cooled. But if they end up in the intensive care unit, the doctor in charge doesn't believe in it. He thinks it blocks his beds, so he won't do it. I don't see this as negligence exactly, because there is, as yet, no authority telling us this is the standard we should use. But surely there should be. All of this, I say, must have had a powerful bearing on Parnia's own sense of mortality. Is he comforted or made paranoid by his work? He suggests that the experience of talking to people who have returned from dying serves only to enhance his curiosity about the process they have undergone, and which he has sometimes helped to reverse. Other than that, he says, In ICU, I see people dying every day, and each time it happens, a part of you thinks, One day, this will be me. There will be people huddling round my bed, deciding whether or not to resuscitate. And I know one thing for sure. I don't want it just down to pot luck, whether I end up brain damaged or even alive. In her new film, The Place Beyond the Pines, Eva Mendes ditches glam, playing a hard-grafting waitress opposite real-life partner Ryan Gosling. She talks about how the role mirrors her upbringing by Catherine Shord. If you see Mike Lee, says Eva Mendes, tell him Mendes really wants him, and I do a good cockney. So I did. Or rather, I emailed his agent. Mendes had already done the heavy lifting. I sent him a note maybe like eight years ago, she says, a little giddy, and I'm sure he had no idea who I was, and then I ran into him and he was lovely. So I just hope these last eight years I've maybe done something that he's liked or could see potential in so we could possibly work together. His films are magical, she says, they move her to tears. I come from a very Cuban family, and for some reason his family dynamics, although not similar, are so familiar to me. Lee has been known to read The Guardian, I say. She sounds ecstatic. Maybe you can work it into your article somehow. To meet Mendes, it turns out, is to root for her, to be smoothly recruited onto her team. Together, maybe, just maybe, you can make this thing happen. A few days later, the agent writes back. Lee is in pre-production on his new film and completely unavailable to deal with this. For Mendes, it will not be a shock. Nor for me for there is a reason that she is unlikely to be first choice to play Jim Broadbent's long-lost daughter, or Timothy Spall's fagash pal, always up for sinking a pint somewhere off London's North Circular Road. And she knows it. Somehow, she says hesitantly, well, I've been told anyway, some people have said that my image is a bit glamorous. She may be onto something there. Mendes is a bit glamorous. Up close, she is so striking, you feel as if you were rubbernecking. Skin silky, face radiant and lynx-like, lethal cheekbones, roller coaster curves. She has fronted ads for Cartier, Revlon, Morgan, Campari and Calvin Klein's seductive comfort lingerie. She has been a spokeswoman for Pantene, Reebok Easytone trainers and Australia's 30 Days of Fashion and Beauty. In 2009, she was named Magnum Ice Cream's Global Pleasure Ambassador, one for the passport that, with a remit that included liaising with the firm's Professor of Pleasure and hosting a Pleasure Summit in Istanbul. It was here that she divulged that chocolate, hard work and three massages a week do it for her. 
Mendes is then no stranger to the advertising campaign. But lately the campaigns have changed. There have been fewer of them and they have had a different emphasis. Basically, easy on the cleavage. The only one she has done this year is for Vogue Spectacles. The reason is Mike Lee, or at least Leah likes. Mendes also has Pedro Almodovar and David Lynch in her crosshairs. Sometime in 2009, after shooting Frank Miller's vampy noir, The Spirit, she made a conscious choice. No more Duff sequels, no more superfluous sultry, no more plain predictability. I just made a decision. I said, I am not working with the Mike Lees of this world, and I want to. When it comes to being an actress, I actually really love coming from a very raw place. Any opportunity I get to not wear makeup on set, I take. I really don't care about looking beautiful in a film unless I have to for the character. I don't check playback. I don't even know anything about lighting. I love anything that gets me closer to the role. So I needed to turn down those things that could possibly pigeonhole me. In fact, Mendes is being a little tough on a CV that includes Training Day, Hitch and We Own the Night. Still, her strategy worked. Her first film post The Spirit was Werner Herzog's Bad Lieutenant. Then came The Other Guys, in which Mendes successfully spoofed her own sex appeal, and the adultery drama Last Night. Over the past year, she has been in one of the most acclaimed films of the decade, Leos Carax's Holy Motors a credible Mexican indie, Girl in Progress, and the new movie from the team behind Blue Valentine, The Place Beyond the Pines. In it, she plays Romina, a hard-grafting waitress who becomes pregnant after a fling with Ryan Gosling's bleach-blonde, bad-tatted stunt motorcyclist for a travelling circus. When he returns to town the following year, he realises he has a baby son and decides to stick around. This does not go well. It is a film preoccupied with paternal legacy, both for Gosling and for a local cop, played by Bradley Cooper, who has a son of the same age. The maternal influence is muted, but Mendes is scrubbily committed to and convincing in the part. She felt such kinship with the character that she told director Derek France that an audition would not be appropriate. I just said... Hey, I would love to drive you around and talk about Romina and show you where I grew up and draw the parallels there. I think that would probably best serve the character at this point. Both she and Romina, she thinks, are products of their environment, the children of a single mother raised in relative poverty. To be first-generation American, she says, is a great privilege, but it also comes with a lot of responsibilities. You really don't have an excuse. Your parents most likely fought to get there and did it for you. You see Romina struggling to make the best life for her and her child. She's trying to make all the right decisions in a world that's a little, you know, unnurturing. Cian France placed such faith in Mendes that he asked her to cast her own on-screen mother. The woman she went for, now mommy hashtag two on her mobile, was the one who most resembled the real-life version. In what way? integrity. She had such a strong moral compass, but wasn't preachy. She just commanded respect in the real sense. And she didn't put on any airs, but was definitely a woman who you just sat up a little straighter when she was around. Pines is a movie with a pronounced moral backbone. It is oddly concerned with etiquette. Gosling's character, like his white knight in Drive, 
finds guns vulgar, considers condescension distasteful, suspects it would have been common courtesy to let him know he had a son. Such a code of conduct chimes with Mendes, about whom there is something peculiarly vintage, not just her home decor line or her forthcoming clothes collection. She seems like a star from a different era, a Sophia Loren rather than a Cameron Diaz, already mature when she was 30. She's now 39. She spends a lot of time with her mother. She's 70, a real fun age. Every day there's a new pain and she laughs at it, says Mendes, and it's to spare her feelings that she won't speak of her 2008 stint in rehab. Her relationship with Gosling is off-limits also, as was an eight-year stretch with her previous boyfriend. Mendes, who nursed a childhood dream to be a nun, is a pin-up perennial without tabloid baggage. She applauds the practice of pixelating the faces of celebrities' children and thinks the policy should be rolled out to their dogs, as she gets unnerved when strangers know the name of her Belgian shepherd, Hugo. It is possible they are clocking her and then joining the dots, rather than actually recognising the dog from a photo. Most of all, she is scrupulously polite, friendly almost to a fault. When I first met her in Toronto, following Pine's premiere, it was alongside some other reporters, one of whom kicked things off with an appreciation of the outfit she wears in her first scene with a returned gosling. Mendes was, he felt, with hubba-hubba emphasis, letting him know what he'd left behind. If she found that creepy, she didn't say so. Rather, she clutched the man's elbow and said, "'That's interesting you say that. God, I love you. I made a choice that was quite the opposite of that. I lost a lot of weight for it, like 15 pounds. I wanted it to feel like this baby had depleted her, like he had sucked the life out of her.' I saw her as very kind of unsexy and unflattering in that outfit, a little pathetic. I wanted to make her haggard. She laughs. Please tell me I looked like shit. There is silence. Approaching Mike Lee was one thing. This may be a task too far. Welcome to our audio book review. I'm Claire Armistead and with me is The Guardian's children's books editor, Julia Eccleshare and Richard Lee from The Guardian Books Desk. Today, we're investigating mysteries for younger listeners, the sort of thing you might want to stick on in the car for an Easter holiday trip. We'll be hearing Nicholas Grace reading a comedy crime caper for 8 to 12-year-olds, which Anthony Horowitz first published in 1986, called The Falcon's Malteser. But first, we're looking at the latest in Anne Cassidy's murder notebook series, Killing Rachel. This is aimed at kids who are a little older, isn't it, Julia? Yeah, this is a sort of 12 plus at least. It's got kind of tiny bit of, you know, love interest. And there are two dead bodies, so it's quite kind of dramatic. And the nasty kidnap scene. Yeah, no, this is older readers. Does she deliver what she promises? Yeah, I think she does. Her sort of most well-known book is Looking for JJ, which was, I think, an incredibly good book about a child killer who then has to get rehabilitated, which is a very interesting premise. So she's very good at the psychology about killing and what happens to people afterwards. But this is good because it's really two stories woven into one. The headline story 
in which, you know, Rachel is killed or may have committed suicide. That's not completely clear at the beginning. And that lies inside the bigger story of Rose and Joshua looking for their parents. They've they've each got a parent involved in this rather complicated story. It's a long sequence and it was begun with dead time. And they are the murder notebooks and they've got, following around the story of their parents, they've got these files and those are the notebooks. So there's this big overarching story, but within it there's the Killing Rachel story. And the Killing Rachel story, which is set in a boarding school, perfect place for a murder, those kind of precincts that are small, not too many characters. It's a shame that the girl who's killed is Rachel and the heroine is Rose. You do get a bit baffled, but it's all right. And uh, she's very, very good at that. And she's very good on the sort of petty hatred, the jealousies, the meanness of girls. And actually, you feel any of them might have done any of the others in, especially as this school has a really dangerous boating lake right in the middle of its grounds. Now, this is all girls. So if you're in a car full of boys and girls. Is mm. this one to put on or do you think it, it really... Oh, no, it's a teen girl read because, I mean, Rose is in love with Joshua, her sort of half-brother, and he's kind of not that interested in her. I don't think this is a boy's book, girl's book. And how is the reading? It's good. It's fine. I mean, there's a lot of narrative in this. I mean, there are moments when... I mean, the plot's good, very good, particularly, as I say, the Killing Rachel one, but there are moments when there's too much telling us. You know, we're walking along a corridor in the school and we're told what every bedroom door's name is and they're called Daisy and Sunflower and those sorts of things. And the reading, therefore, has to carry these not very dramatic bits... And that's quite difficult. But no, it's good. It holds your attention all the way. And it has a very strong sense of place, doesn't it? Terrific, yeah. I mean, it's set on the East Coast. I mean, rather coincidentally, the two stories within this book, The Murder Notebooks, the big story of Joshua and Rose's parents who have vanished and who may have been killed or may not, but there's sort of talk of secret service and Russian spies and all of these sorts of things, and the boarding school all seem to be set just near Holt in Norfolk. So there's lots of mud flats. Again, very good for murder. How does it work as part of a sequence? Well, that's the only downside, it seems to me, that, I mean, it doesn't matter if you haven't read Dead Time, the the previous volume, because Anne Cassidy is very good at stitching back. So she does keep telling you what's happened before. But on the other hand, that can be a little bit irritating. And that's another reason why The Killing Rachel Strand is better, because that's fresh and just comes along and it happens. But although we still don't know quite the end of that, because we've got to wait for the next volume. So that's quite good, because it's a bit of a cliffhanger. We are waiting to know what happens next. But personally, I would rather have a book that started and finished. Let's just have a listen to how well it works in audio. Rose was hiding. It was dark and cold, and she was in a shop doorway staring at two people across the road. The street was busy, and a stream of people passed without noticing her, wrapped up against the cold night air. She could see clouds of white breath coming from their mouths, and hear their excited chatter as they talked about their plans for the evening. She kept her eyes on the couple. The boy was her stepbrother Joshua. He was standing outside a door next to a cafe called Lettuce and Stuff. Opposite him was a girl who Rose had never seen before. She was shorter than Joshua and was wearing a kind of duffel coat with a hood down. Her fair hair was spilling over her shoulders and she was staring up at him, seemingly rapt. If you're after something a little less serious, then Anthony Horowitz's The Falcon's Malteser from his Diamond Brothers series might be more up your street. Is that so, Richard? Yeah, well, this is actually one of Anthony Horowitz's early successes. It's marvellously silly West London noir, which is it's heavy on the wisecracks and light on the kind of noir. Who's the gumshoe in it? Well, that's all part of the fun. The, the name on the door of this 
private investigation business is Tim Diamond, which is a name taken by Herbert Timothy Simple. He's a failed cop who decided that he'd set up in business as a private investigator. But the brains of the operation is his younger brother, Nick. Now, he's 13 years old and has been living with his older brother, his 30-year-old brother, Tim, since his parents went to Australia and he nicked off to avoid the plane. Tim's no good at all as a cop and he's no good as a private uh, investigator either. Um, So we can hear a bit from the opening uh, in Nicholas Grace's version as we hear just, just how bad their business is going. There's not much call for private detectives in Fulham. The day it all started was a bad one. Business was so slack it was falling down all around us. The gas had been disconnected that morning, one of the coldest mornings for 20 years, and it could only be a matter of time before the electricity followed. We'd run out of food, and the people in the supermarket downstairs had all fallen about laughing when I suggested credit. We had just £2.37 and about three teaspoons of instant coffee to last us the weekend. The wallpaper was peeling, the carpets were fraying, and the curtains, well, whichever way you looked at it, it was curtains for us. Even the cockroaches were walking out. Nicholas Grace there. So... Why does the dwarf want a private detective, Richard? Well, the dwarf is Johnny Naples, who's a kind of Bolivian quack, and nobody from La Paz in Bolivia. And he wants the brothers to look after a package. And this package holds the key to a a gangster's fortune. Uh, There's this criminal mastermind, the Falcon, uh, who's Henry von Falkenberg, who's recently deceased, and left a clue and the contents of this package with the guy who's looking after him, this doctor, Johnny Naples. And Johnny Naples has come to London to try and work out how to unlock his fortune with the contents of this package, which turns out to be a box of Maltesers, and then feels he's being pursued, so goes to hand it over to the brothers so that they can keep it safe for him, and they get mixed up in the hunt for these diamonds. There's a, a, a brilliant cast. There's a fat man who, of course, is thin. There's Henry von Falkenberg's widow, Beatrice von Falkenberg. There's William Gott and Eric Himmel, a kind of comic uh, German pair of hitmen as a professor and two two policemen including one who seems to want to beat up the brothers at any opportunity. He's trying to splice thrills and silliness isn't he and that's quite a difficult act to pull off does yes, it work? he's done it really nicely it's, it's, it's very funny, there's very dry humour, a nice kind of wisecracking voice but it's also very nicely paced and it's the, the plot builds nicely and, and plays with the conventions nicely for slightly older readers but equally there's enough of a thrill to keep younger readers uh, interested. It's aimed fairly squarely at eight 12-year-old boys, and so some of the humour is fairly broad, the wisecracks are fairly broad, but it's, uh, it's pretty classy compared to some of the kind of fart joke material that 8 to 12-year-old boys are served up these days. Julia, Anthony Horowitz is best known for his Alex Ryder books. Where does this fit into his oeuvre? Well, I think what's so interesting about this, people think that Horowitz arrived with Alex Ryder. Absolutely not true. He'd been working very hard for a lot of years before that, writing exactly this kind of book with some very good successes. And this was the best of those previous successes. Grusham Grange was also very good. But because Alex Ryder was such a sort of overall success and film and all of that, it became the big property. And I think people sometimes forget that Horowitz was a very good writer before that and that a lot of boys particularly had found his stuff and enjoyed it. It's a moral lesson for all writers they don't well all readers most writers don't just spring unbidden into the world they usually have some back catalogue and it's worth delving into it i think what's interesting about it as well is that alex Ryder is clearly very exciting but this is also just just as good at the comedy i mean mm. it's, it's very nicely played 
Now, Nicholas Grace, a blast from the past for me, Richard. You may be too young to remember him, but how does he read it? He does it very well, but it kind of reveals a bit, a bit of a problem with the book, in a way, as an audio experience, because the voice is a kind of literary trick. You've got a 13-year-old Londoner who's kind of talking like Sam Spade, and really that doesn't really make very much sense when you actually hear it out loud. There's a rich vein of comedy in what Anthony Horowitz finds with the disconnects in age and location. So you have him talking about riding the number 14 bus to the West End and popping into the newsagents, but yet he's kind of making wisecracks about the guy buying the farm when he gets killed. With a, with, a, with a pistol or whatever. And an actor has to decide which way to jump. Now, Nicholas Grace has made a perfectly reasonable decision to make it sound a bit like a nice 13-year-old boy from Fulham. But a lot of the dry humour just comes out undercooked. It comes out as if he's kind of slightly baffled. And that's a, a thing about the audio format. You just can't reproduce the magic of that on the page. Well, whether you've got a boy or a girl in your car, there's something for everyone in those choices. If you want to investigate the mystery of Anthony Horowitz's narrator or listen out for clues to the riddle of Anne Cassidy's note books, then go to audible.co.uk. You'll find the books featured this week are available to download onto a selection of electronic devices. Next week, we're turning to non-fiction. Until then, goodbye. If you want to listen to the books reviewed or choose from over 60,000 titles to enjoy on your smartphone, tablet, iPod or computer, visit audible.co.uk. Make more time for books with Audible by downloading and listening to them wherever you are.